The number of COVID-19 cases is growing nationally, along with the potential for a rise in respiratory illnesses this fall. Health officials urge everyone who is eligible to get vaccinated against the so-called triple threat of COVID-19, flu, and respiratory syncytial virus once those shots become available. In the meantime, hospitals and health systems can take tips from one another about the best ways to prepare for a possible sudden spike in hospitalizations. Welcome to Advancing Health, a podcast from the American Hospital Association. I'm Tom Hederly with AHA Communications. COVID-19 hasn't gone away, and neither has the possibility of dealing with another triple threat, the confluence of COVID, RSV, and influenza cases that sent many young children to hospital emergency rooms not so long ago. St. Luke's Health System, based in Boise, Idaho, was among those that were quickly faced with a great surge in young patients. In this podcast, two St. Luke's experts describe how they coped and pivoted to make room for those who needed care, and how the rapid creation of respiratory outpatient clinics across the state made a tremendous difference. This discussion was moderated by Kathy Cummings, former Director of Communications for AHA Center for Health Innovation. She is joined by Dr. Allison Gautier, Director of the Pediatric Emergency Department for St. Luke's Health System in Idaho, and Julie Snyder, Director of Respiratory Therapy for St. Luke's. Allison and Julie, thank you so much for joining us on AHA's Advancing Health Podcast. We're thrilled to have you here to help us kind of learn more about this topic around COVID-19 and the triple threat um, that we've been experiencing over these past few months with um, that in RSV and, of course, the flu. So I don't think we're out of the woods yet. It's been, I know, an incredibly challenging time for you guys. So I thought maybe you can start out by telling us about your role at St. Luke's Health System, which I know is based in Idaho. And Allison, let's start with you. Hello, yes. I am a board-certified emergency physician as well as a board-certified pediatrician. I work with the emergency medicine of Idaho, and I am currently the pediatric emergency department director and pediatric ED trauma director. Julie, tell us about your role at St. Luke's. My name is Julie Snyder. I am a registered respiratory therapist, and I am the system director for respiratory therapy for St. Luke's Health System. So I oversee all of the hospitals um, in our health system for respiratory therapy. So Allison, last fall, there was so much news coverage around this convergence of COVID-19, RSV, influenza, and how it was hitting this nation hard, hitting our pediatric hospital units. What happened there? Well, I think this kind of goes back to the main reason why we quarantined in March of 2020, because we wanted to try to flatten a large number of patients getting sick at the same time. And that's exactly what we saw this last fall in our pediatric population. Uh, When you have a large group of people all getting sick, all requiring medical care, it's going to strain our already strained medical system. And while adults can have also gotten RSV, influenza, and COVID, it definitely was a huge concern to our children who had previously been masked or not going to school and now just getting exposed to all three viruses at once. And how did that impact your hospital? How did it impact capacity? 
it uh, was a major effect to our hospital and it was a, a huge impact to the children and families that went through this. So we saw a record number of pediatric visits in our ER in Boise. Uh, for example, in December of 2021, so the year prior, we saw about 700 pediatric ER visits for that month. And in December of 2022, we saw over 1,100. And we are the only children's hospital in Idaho, so we expect to see larger numbers than other facilities, but this was um, a huge spike in, in, in ED visits. Um, we had record number of admissions in our pediatric floor as well as our pediatric intensive care unit. We were holding admissions in our ERs for a lengthy period of time, up to even beyond 24 hours in the emergency department waiting for a bed to be admitted. We were transferring children uh, across the state to go to critical access hospitals for admission. We transferred children out of state for admissions. We canceled pediatric surgeries to try to limit their use of inpatient beds so we could admit uh, children with these viruses. And we had frequent discussions to activate crisis standard of care for pediatric patients, which was not something I was ever hoping to have true discussions about. Well, the coordination of that sounds intense. And Julie, what were some of the effects you were seeing? Just like Allison mentioned, we were just overwhelmed with admissions and patients, um, not only on the adult side, but now on the children's side as well. And so that just put a real strain on our whole facilities. I mean, trying to get supplies, beds, staffing, trying to keep up and give, you know, the excellent care that we we pride ourselves on at St. Luke's um, to all of these patients. It was just very, very challenging you know, and then trying to place these kiddos in a facility where they could get the care that they needed. It's just, it was, it was really overwhelming. Tell us about the young patients who were at most risk. Did they have other medical conditions or were these typically healthy kids? These are usually healthy kids. The highest risk are neonates, so children uh, one month and less, and then also children less than two are usually the ones that are most affected by RSV. Um, but we saw children, you know, up to the age of four still requiring admission for this. And if they, those kids typically had some underlying reactive airway disease, such as asthma, um, but they don't have to have asthma to have severe effects from bronchiolitis with RSV. So when you see rising cases like this, is it a surprise? I mean, how are you able to quickly turn things around, manage it, manage staff, um, keep your staff going after an incredible, you know, three years of a pandemic and knowing that things have been overwhelming for quite some time now? What was that like? Well, we definitely watch what happens in Australia because they have their winter prior to us. So we can see in the summer and we do closely mimic them. But typically in Idaho, our RSV season starts in December, and this year it started in October. So we were pretty surprised with the timing. I think we were mentally thinking more in December we would start to see an uptick. So we had to really kind of change our focus and have, you know, twice a day meetings to make sure we had accurate staffing and that we were uh, prepared to take care of these children. And are we out of the woods net now of this triple threat? Um, are there precautions that you're taking, that your staff is taking to um, keep numbers down? I think we are getting better. Um, obviously, we still mask in our hospital. You know, hand washing and staying at home when sick is huge to try to reduce the spread. 
But we had this flood of pediatric patients and Julie and I worked together on creating a respiratory outpatient clinic. So that way we could try to offload the burden of admissions as well as ER visits. And so Julie, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, you bet. The respiratory outpatient clinic was just a great resource for our community. It was a respiratory therapy run clinic. It was by referral only because we did want to ensure that these children were seeing a provider um, and that they were appropriate to come to our clinic. We were able to do the clinic 24-7. It was free. So anybody could come that was three years and younger, and we would do nasal suctioning and an assessment on these patients. We were able to get this up and running in one month, which is just unprecedented for a health system. Our team just came together for everybody from, you know, the top down and to get this clinic up and running. And, you know, these clinics really have shown admission reduction by about 30%. So we started off our clinic in our Boise location and then quickly moved throughout the rest of our system to get clinics up and running in every site we have. We saw about 457 encounters with 258 different patients. So we did have patients that came multiple times to the clinic. Of the 258 patients that we saw, 42 of them were referred to the ED after being seen in our clinic, but only about 21 of those were admitted. So when you look at those numbers, I mean, we saved about 216 visits to the ED, urgent care, or provider offices that were already overwhelmed with patients coming in from, you know, everywhere. So it, it really was a benefit to our community. Our families were so grateful that they had a place to go and be seen quickly. Our wait times were about five to 10 minutes when you came in. So um, if you brought your child in, we were able to get you in and see you very quickly and then get you the care that you needed if you needed to be seen by a provider. So it was, it was such a benefit for our community. It's something we plan on doing every season. So. Yeah, I mean, those numbers are massively impressive. I mean, congratulations to you and your teams. Really, really impressive work. What were some of the best practices that came out of that? Well, I think one thing that we were able to do for our suction clinic is we were able to do more education when those parents came in on how to suction your kiddo at home and keep them at home. We were also able to get some grant money from um, our Children's Institute that allowed us to give what we call nose Fridas, which are um, suction devices that parents can use at home to do a little bit better suctioning. So I think that has been really helpful on our education point to try to empower those parents to keep their kiddos at home. Allison, do you have some more to add to that? I think it was great because um, in the ER, when we saw these kids that were maybe borderline and we just wanted to have very close follow-up for them and giving them the information that they could go to this clinic 24-7 for free just to get reevaluated was huge off the ER's burden about getting follow-up and placement and and just knowing that there was this safe net for these patients was huge. That was a great thing to have for us. And when we see hospitals responding like that, I, I mean, Tell me about how that helps build trust in your communities. Well, because we are the children's hospital, I think that we have some trust already built in. And I think providing this service helped increase that because they saw how much we cared for these families and, and what we were willing to you know, provide uh, for them 24-7 just helps further, further that trust. 
Well, let's talk specifically about COVID-19 for a while now. I know we're kind of still in this aftermath, but as you look back over the last couple of years in, in pediatric care, how has it changed the way that you deliver care? Well, you know, hospitals and clinics had to really change strategies. We saw a lot go to telehealth visits, which have, you know, benefits, um, but also there's some difficulties with that without being able to do a proper physical exam or vital signs. Pediatric medicine in general does not create the same revenue as hospi- as adults um, medicine. And so we've seen several pediatric hospitals across the U.S. close. And so I think that forces a lot more burden on other pediatric hospitals in, that er- in those areas. Even in Idaho, we had another hospital system close down their pediatric inpatient area due to costs and healthcare worker shortages. And so we saw kind of the uptick uh, from that as well. And in order to reduce costs and try to recuperate after, you know, big expenditures like COVID, we are trying to reduce ED utilization. And it's a big focus of, of, of what we try to do as well. And so I think we're shifting more out of the ER and more into these clinics and more into urgent cares to try to reduce costs in general. Which I would imagine is very reassuring for your families, for your patients, for your communities, that, that the care is there. Correct. Um, we know that I've uh, heard from other hospitals and physicians, particularly in pediatric care, that, you know, they, they faced a lot of barriers to getting children vaccinated against COVID-19. What was your experience with that? You talked a lot about education. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, Idaho historically has low vaccine rates among pediatric patients. Um, we do have exemptions allowed for vaccines in schools, and they're their exemptions are used pretty frequently. Um, it's a new vaccine, so sometimes it can take a while for parents to understand the benefits of vaccines. Um, but we had pediatric-specific vaccine clinics with our system. It was more like a carnival with therapy dogs and stuffed animals and stickers. So we made it more more fun than you know medicine and vaccines. So hopefully in the eyes of children. And then we continue to do counseling on on the vaccines in our pediatric clinics. There, you know, obviously has been a lot of misinformation out there, widespread about COVID. And so we're just trying to correct some of that, give them reputable sources. And then we continue to promote this education throughout the system. And overall, do you think that COVID-19 and all the education that's been done around the COVID-19 vaccine has given a boost just to confidence in vaccines overall? I think it ebbs and flows. Um, I think I would hope by now that we've had this vaccine for, you know, over two years and we have seen how families and and patients have done with it and, and how safe they are. I think there are still some mistrust that occurs. And so we just have to continue to work on those barriers and and reach those patients. So here's a question for both of you. What challenges still lie ahead of us, whether it's COVID-19, RSV, or or other respiratory illnesses? Um, Allison, let's start with you. Well, obviously, we want to keep our patients healthy. So I am a huge supporter of vaccines and hand washing and and doing those things because I want our communities to be healthy. Um, I do think that reducing ED utilization will be uh, important because we do not have the staff or we cannot just continue to build larger ERs um, for the communities. So I think that's still a challenge. 
I think continuing to scale up our respiratory clinic, and Julie can speak about this as well to help those families and community. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, just trying to expand some of our outpatient services that do keep our families out of the emergency room is really important. Even with our clinic going up so fast, there are a lot of clinics that do offer medications when you come in and things like that. We weren't able to manifest that this season, just trying to ramp up so quickly. We also had some barriers with people that didn't use our epic charting system, um, trying to do paper order. So we're trying to expand our clinics to include more things and offer um, more benefit and help to the community, which I think will be really important going forward. You know, we're all anticipating the end, the official end of this pandemic or the, the public health emergency coming, I think, as, as early as May. Any final thoughts around that? What does that mean to you? I think the one thing COVID has taught us is to really think outside the box and kind of be ready for the next thing while still taking care of the current issues. And so I cannot wait to have an official end of pandemic stamp on this. I still think that in the healthcare system, uh, we always have to be ready and continue to provide excellent care. I agree. We're, we're much more efficient now at ramping up quickly when we need to, um, to care for those patients that are in our facilities and need our help. But, you know, again, just continuing to provide accessible and affordable healthcare to our community is really important. And if we can find ways to do that, that keep patients out of the hospital and out of the emergency rooms. That's what we're looking for going forward. Well, thank you both so much for sharing this time with me, for sharing your experiences and the great work that you've been doing. Truly keep it up. It's really amazing stuff. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This podcast was funded in part by a cooperative agreement with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The contents of this resource do not necessarily represent the policy of CDC or HHS and should not be considered an endorsement by the federal government.